My siblings and I call it the Donut Thanksgiving, and it is absolutely infamous in my family. Uh, 2001, although we have a minority report that it was 2002 that just came in yesterday when I was talking to my sisters about it. Whichever year it was, it was a rough one. My father was struggling with extreme insomnia, uh, and he woke up roughly three in the morning, wide awake, and he had an idea. And it was a very bad idea, but when you have insomnia, bad ideas look great. Uh, so my mother, a little background, had loved this donut shop in Jacksonville, where we're from, called Mims. And part of my parents' courtships, uh, courtship was watching uh, my mother eat like a dozen Mims donuts with my dad's sort of saucer-eyed. And uh, so Mims sadly uh, closed uh, in the early 80s before I was even born, and it has been sort of like the white whale of donuts for my parents uh, ever since. And so at some fateful moment, my father said, Online, I bet on the World Wide Web, the recipe for Mims Donuts exists. And he thought he had found it. Uh, and so he got to work, a uh, little misguided gobbler elf, uh, the eve of Thanksgiving. And uh, he failed to notice uh, or remember that it was a recipe for a donut shop. So it was for a gross of donuts. Now, if you don't know what a gross is, it's 144 donuts. Uh, and so he got in too deep, and uh, somewhere around, I would guess, seven in the morning, my mother, uh, sort of the star quarterback of the culinary team on Super Bowl Thanksgiving Sunday, she entered the, the kitchen, and it, it was like a surrealist nightmare. Uh, <laughs> my favorite part is my dad had so many donuts, he just took tons of platters and then just stacked like these ziggurats of just towers of donuts. And they were all over the kitchen. And my dad was not a clean as you go kind of person. So there was just oil and flour everywhere. And my mother uh, did not respond with Thanksgiving, uh, <laughs> gratitude, uh, or graciousness. So, um, uh, I woke up to a, a full-throated uh, discussion about my father's lack of wisdom. And uh, the worst part is they were absolutely inedible. I don't think that was the recipe for Mims. If it was, I know why they went out of business. Uh, uh, I mean, my dad left in a huff to like, cool down, and all of us kids are awake and you desperately want to like the donut a little bit. I think I ate more than anybody else. I ate like three or four bites and then thought, am I gonna be okay? They were just saturated with oil. Um, so it was a two-parter because it was then all hands on deck to get the kitchen back to the starting line to start Thanksgiving meals. Uh, and we thought, what are we gonna do with 142 and a half donuts? Uh, and so we, we trashed them. I think we kept like one small little ziggurat uh, as like a token of peace to my dad. But when he came back, having thought he was calmed down and all, all my towers are gone, uh, it was like part two. And I mean, goodness, Thanksgiving meal, uh, you could have cut the turkey easier with a knife than the tension in the room. It was, it was a miserable uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, I would argue, um, 
that my parents struggled with a variety of things, but that morning, it was an inability to lament, a resistance uh, to lamentation that sort of claimed our Thanksgiving of 2001 or 2002. It was roughly at this point when I gave this talk a little over two months ago that uh, one of our wonderful high school students just shot her hand in the air. Uh, and it, it's not as formal as this setting, but it's still not usual to have uh, Q&A during your talk. And I was like, might throw me off my jam, but I was, yes. And she goes, Gerald, what is lament? And I realized we had the graphic, and it said, like, through lament. And I had never defined lament, so let me not uh, make that same mistake. Uh, lament is just an expression of sadness. Its, its symbol could be a tear, but you do not have to cry to be lamenting. When you saw that a student ministry director was going to be preaching a sermon, you might have experienced a moment of lament. Uh, uh, Lament is additionally a spiritual discipline. Uh, and that's just a fancy way of saying for us to do it the way God intended does not come naturally, does not come easily. It requires both self-control and honestly the Holy Spirit's uh, power. Um, lament is commanded and modeled all over the Bible. The first lament in scripture, undebatably, uh, they're earlier, like, this person might be lamenting, but the first one for sure is Genesis 6-6. And God saw the evil of humanity, and it, quote, grieved God in his heart that he had made man. That's a feel-good verse. Uh, you get it on a mug, it's a good conversation starter with coworkers. <laughs> Bill, does it say that God was grieved in his heart to make human beings? Yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> Um, after that, we get lament after lament after lament, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, more than 50 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament, expressing deep sadness. The entire book of Lamentations is five lament poems. Jesus wept at Lazarus' death, even though he was about to resurrect him, and he wept on Palm Sunday. When he entered Jerusalem in triumph on that donkey with everybody waving palm branches, just seeing the city of Jerusalem in front of a whole crowd of people, he was unraveled and he started weeping. It's funny, I feel like on Palm Sunday, I always remember us, Hosanna, that's always a fun one. The kids sometimes come into church. We, we don't tend to dwell on the grown man crying in public in front of, I'm sure, his uncomfortable disciples. And our main biblical text, um, which is on the back of your bulletin this morning, uh, is a part of what is known as the Sermon on the Plain, uh, to distinguish it from the much more famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's definitely a different version of the same sermon that Jesus probably taught many times uh, throughout his public ministry. Um, he had just performed many miracles, it says just in one summary verse, and then he gathered on a flat place, hence Sermon on the Plain, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said the following. First, I just want you to imagine, uh, we know he fed 5,000, 
men and their families, uh, another story of 3,000. There was probably thousands of people around him, and many of them had seen things that they could not explain, and then the person who performed those wonders said this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Remember, mostly fishermen probably and farmers, but Jesus' followers, those people interested in this wonder worker, they come, came from all socioeconomic levels of first century Palestine. And there were probably some wealthy people listening. Can you imagine how uncomfortable it would have been if you were just like even the fisherman who was wise enough to bring your lunch that morning? Woe to you who are full now. Okay, lower the sandwich back down. Uh, probably in real life, there were friends who had just whispered something funny to each other and are laughing. Woe to you who laugh now. And then, <clears throat> and then they realize, well, I'm getting called out, maybe, I don't know. I don't think Jesus was being strictly literal. I don't think he was saying that on this, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, and for all times, if you're poor, hungry, sad, unpopular, don't worry, you're all set in my kingdom. As for you rich, full, happy, and popular, wouldn't want your future. So what is Jesus saying? I think he is definitely saying, we can all agree, that there is a sense in which the subjects of his kingdom need to feel poor, hungry, mournful or lamentable, and extremely unpopular. And I would argue that that last item of being cast out, of being spurned as evil, suggests that we can't dismiss it all as figurative because in what metaphorical sense can you be outcast? So Jesus is doing something very deep here. It's not strictly metaphor, and it's not totally literal. If you're hungry, then great. Um, if you're full, then sorry. Um, I'm just gonna content myself with saying that each of the blessings and each of the woes could be its own sermon, so we're gonna drill into uh, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This is what James has to say on the subject in one of the last books of the Bible. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Our question this morning, at least the question I'm going to frame for you, is why? Lament is unpleasant and arguably unhelpful. In American culture, many of our popular heroes are near emotionless. Tony Stark, Sherlock Holmes, James Bond, Bruce Wayne, Aragorn, 
The helpless cry and the heroes make sarcastic jokes and they get things done. Do you ever have that attitude? What is the point of feeling sad? What's the value? It doesn't change anything. We lament because the alternatives are worse. And when we lament, look at the verse, Jesus blesses us. We are drawing near to God and he draws near to us. Let's look at the alternatives though first. First up, denial. I'm fine. Are you sure you seem a little disappointed? No. We cannot help but pretend we are okay when we are not. I would say it's a primal instinct intensified by habit and culture, and that is a powerful combination. When I was in ninth grade, we had a lock-in. Uh, we had this giant inflatable gladiatorial match, uh, so just picture a bounce house without walls, which is a great idea. Uh, and we started out using it as the manufacturer demanded that it be used, printed in giant 12-inch letters on the side, and then three in the morning came and our student ministry directors were tired. Uh, so we started playing jackpot uh, on this thing. So one person was on the other side of the gym throwing a football, like a dozen of us are jumping up and down trying to grab the football, you know, 400, and you just wanna catch the ball no matter what. Uh, and so one fateful throw fell very close to the edge. And so the wise thing is don't go for it. It's, you're gonna get hurt. So I just dove. It's, uh, and I land on the very edge. I cannot remember if I caught it, which probably means I dropped it. Uh, uh, and when I land, everybody lands on me. So it's probably about 400 pounds of teenagers and uh, the, the side just totally collapsed. And I braced my hand down, and uh, sorry for you viscerally uh, compassionate people, but there were scratches on my forearm from my fingernails. Uh, so I like hop up and exit the gym. Uh, I'm done playing, and all my friends notice, hey, Gerald just unceremoniously left. Uh, so my closest friend, Jordan, is like, Gerald, are you all right? And I'm, I'm just hearing my heartbeat in my eardrums, and I'm just fleeing. And I remember we were on the stairs, and he goes, Gerald, are you okay? And I go, I'm fine. <laughs> like I just yelled it. Um, I clearly wasn't fine. But I think there was something biological, something primal. If you are hurt, you need to project strength because your predator needs to think, well, it might not be worth it. And it helps us when we are taking on a bobcat, but when it is a friend who is asking you, are you okay? I, I, don't, I didn't need to attack him. Uh, our instincts there betray us all of the time. Why is it worse to deny? It alienates us first from other people, making us feel lonelier and lonelier, and it alienates us from ourselves. It's bad when we habitually lie to others about being fine when we're not. It's far worse when we end up lying to ourselves and believing the lie. You might say, but isn't that just a wonderful coping mechanism? If I trick myself into feeling happy, isn't that better than being unhappy? I'll put it this way. Have you ever seen somebody uh, who can skip a stone really well, and they, they hit it just perfectly, 
parallel to the surface of a glassy lake or the Gulf Coast, and it, the stone just skips forever. Me neither. Eventually, with enough water, that stone will go. And eventually, if you reflexively pretend that you are okay when you are not, after enough life, you won't be able to maintain it. You see, admitting pain, be it a sin that you've committed or against you, a disappointment, a frustration, admitting it is not the problem. The pain is the problem. And failing to admit it, it doesn't solve anything. It creates a new problem to deal with. Then there is numbness. This is the person who goes from, you know what, I don't even care anymore. And there, there's so much emotion, everybody's like, he doesn't know he's lying, right? He clearly cares uh, about this person who's hurt him. To a couple years later, when the person just casually says, you know, I don't even care anymore. And you think, hmm, I think the apathy truly has settled in. In that case, callousness has numbed the person to the pain. But we have so many options to choose from when it comes to numbness. Uh, Disney just gave us such a wonderful one. Disney Plus, I mean, that's just emotional lidocaine for like two years. Uh, personally, I like to work until I'm too exhausted to feel much hurt and crack jokes pretty much nonstop. But you can also mix work with alcohol and Netflix, chocolate, or all at the same time. Uh, this is what Jesus said to his second cousin, John, who was in prison, who was concerned that he had misidentified Jesus as the anointed, as the Messiah that they were waiting for. He said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. He's quoting Isaiah there. It's pretty clear that there is a symbolic aspect to the Messiah's miracles. He gives a blind man his sight and then talks about the blindness of the Pharisees. He feeds 5,000 people by multiplying bread and then says, I am the bread of life, the manna that fed our ancestors in the wilderness. What about healing leprosy? Well, part of that is certainly making the unclean clean again, but there's an often overlooked aspect that would have been unmistakable 2,000 years ago. Leprosy, what we now call Hansen's disease. Nobody's hearing from their doctor, you have leprosy. Uh, they do say you have Hansen's disease, and when they look it up on Wikipedia, they're like, dang, I have leprosy. Uh, uh, it's a bacteria, uh, and all it does is attack the nerve endings in your extremities. It's fairly benign in that it's not like a flesh-eating virus, uh, but the problem is when your nerve endings have been compromised, you don't feel anymore. So if you get just a tiny nick on your finger, usually you don't even have to think about it. You favor that finger. You don't use it to do stuff. And so that protects it from infection or further injury. But when you do not feel pain at all, 
you can break a toe and just keep on walking. And so gangrene and serious infection become the norm. You see, Jesus did not just make unclean people clean. He made numb people feel pain again. Brothers and sisters, we all have leprous hearts. There are things that we should feel where we hurt ourselves, we hurt others, and for whatever reason, uh, we generally have good ones, we think it's better to numb it. Imagine a, a person goes to the doctor, haven't been feeling well, they've had some tests done, they're pretty nervous, and the doctor says, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The person says, hit me with it. He says, the bad news is you have very advanced cancer. It's inoperable. The good news is you and I are the only ones who know about it. So if you don't tell anybody, I won't tell anybody. The person would think that they're the victim of a very, very irrational, sadistic, uh, practical joke. But if the doctor wasn't, the person would explain, telling my loved ones is not the problem. The cancer is the problem. I would argue to you that we treat our sins as though if we don't tell other people about them, then it'll be okay. Brothers and sisters, the sin is the problem. It is hurting you from the inside out. Uh, when I uh, piloted this message, this was the one point that Gary said, you really want to sort of argue that a little bit because there's gonna be natural resistance to that. And so I'll just say that there is no sin in my life that I have successfully rationalized and thought, it's not a big deal. No one else is hurt. That later on, I didn't realize, ah, that is why that is wrong. A uh, very benign example is sleeping habits. I'm a night owl, uh, and from primary school, I, I, one of my fondest memories of like being like second grade is my dad whispering, pretend like you're asleep. We were watching Bill Murray's Stripes, a 1980s <laughs> comedy, at like one in the morning on a school night, and my mom was coming in, and we were almost caught. And I, so bad. I was laying face down on the couch, and my dad goes, little guy fell asleep. <laughs> I'll carry him to bed later. I was like, dad just lied to mom. Uh, that didn't happen all the time, to be clear. Uh, but I thought, this is bonding, and I'm getting things done at night. It has been a very legitimate source of frustration in my family life. I have two preschool boys, and my wife, she gets as much help as I can provide, which is not a lot in the first 90 minutes of the day because I'm such a zombie. And I never chose, some mornings I do choose very badly, uh, I never chose to be a zombie in the morning, but thousands of nights I said, I should go to bed in a little bit. Who's, who's heard if I stay up another hour? The answer is my future family. 
So, whatever is hurting you, God is calling us to face it. Not to deny it, not to numb ourselves to it, but to confront it. And here's the thing, hiding beneath denial and numbness, at the end of the day is despair. What's the point of not denying the truth if it will never change? What's the point of feeling pain if it will never go away? I'm about to use a very extreme example from my own life, but it is so important to me that you understand that Satan loves to convince us that our laments are shallow, that we're being silly to be sad about this. And that's the way he keeps us from going to God with them. Despair can be, I will never get the unit circle. Or, turkey's almost done, who's ready for some very dry meat? Or, nothing I ever do will be good enough. So whatever it is that you don't want to confront because it makes you sad, no matter how superficial it seems, recognize that God will bless that. That donut Thanksgiving, my father needed to lament his honest mistake. My parents needed to lament with each other the state of the kitchen and how frustrating life can be when you're trying to do something sweet and it seems like it would have been better if you had not tried at all. I'm very much like my father. and I'm sure he thought something along the lines of, I'm not gonna get upset over donuts. And that refusal meant that we all got very upset over donuts. Don't do that. Your sin, your exhaustion, your discouragement is worthy of lament. Look back at Luke 6, 21, uh, the second part of the verse. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. What's amazing to me is just how literal that has proven to be in my life. 144 donuts is funny, but we needed to lament before we could laugh. Now to the extreme example. On the morning of March 23rd, 2017, in the same kitchen as the donut Thanksgiving, uh, my mother was killed in a home invasion robbery. She was an elementary school music teacher, home on spring break. The man claims he entered the home because of hunger and did not believe anyone was inside. It's a little difficult for us to believe since my mother's car uh, that he stole was parked in the driveway. He did admit that when she found him inside the house, he did not let her escape. My dad came home to have lunch with my mom and found her in the kitchen. They had been married for 41 years. I remember that night talking to my sisters and brother about what dad was going to do without mom. There was just so much after four decades that he depended on her for. Well, within six Months, he was the executive director of the Justice Coalition, a victim's advocacy group. He mourned with and consoled people who had suffered like he did and mediated a lot between very angry families and law enforcement trying their best. And then on October 16th of last year, I got the call from my older sister, Rachel, uh, that my dad was gone too. The doctor actually put broken heart syndrome on his death certificate. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those 
who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's what Paul wrote to uh, the church in Thessalonica to encourage them. Here's the thing. Uh, There were 81 Sundays between my dad losing my mom and his own life. In those 81 Sundays, he missed church once. Just like at Summit, there is a portion of my uh, parents' uh, Southern Baptist Church bulletin that you can tear off and put in a prayer request. My father vulnerably lamented the loss of my mother and asked for very specific prayer every single week. 80 times he lamented, 80 times the pastor and the other church staff prayed for my father. On my good days, I believe that our heavenly father had 81 more weeks of work for my earthly dad to do. And then he gave him rest and my parents were reunited. And on my bad days, I think, boy, that's childish wishful thinking. What about all the people who are too proud to ask for prayer? Why are they okay? This is the mystery of how God designed lament. Confessing those bad days somehow makes them less frequent. Faith is such a mystery, but God builds it through his church, mourning with each other, confessing to each other, and blessing each other in the process. So I believe that a faithful response to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Plain is to stop denying our pain, stop numbing it, and to reject despair. But how do we hope when despair looks an awful lot like realism? Well, have you ever known someone who seemed to be in such extreme denial, so calloused that it seems like if they ever saw the whole truth of how selfish and hurtful they are, it would just put them right in a mental institution. If you can't think of anyone, let me suggest the last time you brushed your teeth, hopefully this morning, uh, right after you spat, when you looked in the mirror, that person. We all should live with a sense of deep gratitude to our maker and a steadfast commitment to fulfill the reasons that he made us. But you know, we are just too busy. And he seems to give us life whether or not we thank him for it. So we all exist in this state of hopelessness. So where is the hope? The exception to the human rule is where our hope is found. As a human, God did not deny the pain that we cause him every day. He lamented in private and in front of whole crowds. He refused to numb himself all the way to the cross. Matthew 27, 33 to 34. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Even that little bit of numbness to make the crucifixion less agonizing. And he said, no, I'm going to feel this. The closest to despair he came was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But those are the first words of Psalm 22. And its last words are, 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. What had he done? He secured our blessing. This is the beautiful truth that Christians are challenged to believe. We've all defied our maker and deserve to be unmade, but instead he will remake us day by day and then all at once. That began with Jesus' cry of lamentation on the cross. Our creator loves us as a perfect father. Once again, how do we believe it? Mark 9, 24, another father, very sick boy. He asked Jesus to heal his son. Jesus replies, anything is possible for him who believes. Says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus did, and Jesus will. My father sent an email exactly one week to the day before he died. It ended with this. I'm going to go on a sabbatical soon. I need to try and figure out what, if anything, God has for me to do with whatever time I have left. I know he is as close as a whisper, and I can still feel the breeze as he draws near me. I still have not imagined what my life is even supposed to look like at this point. I truly loved your mom. I'm finding so much of my identity was tied up in being her husband. Just... Just how much I enjoyed it is overwhelming. I frankly miss her so much I can't stand it. I know that the Bible tells us that those of us who mourn will be at some point in this world blessed. It is my belief and it is where I place all of my future hope. Amen, Dad. Okay, let's get practical. You really need to watch the NBC primetime drama, This Is Us, which apparently makes all of its viewers weep, and Jesus will bless you. Uh, Now, I actually have three specific things to suggest. Uh, The first two, I would like to be symbolic acts for you, and the third, something of a resolution. First, we are about to have communion. We remember that our blessing cost Jesus his life, but he gave it. Before you go up, take some time to talk to God about the lamentable things in your life. Disappointments, losses, wrongs you've done or that have been done to you. If you'd like us to pray for you, uh, please write them on the prayer request card. And when you come forward, place them on the table. I would like you to think of this as your symbolic act that expresses your intention to talk to God about these kinds of things more often. I believe very strongly that many of our conflicts with our spouses, with our friends, with the person in front of us uh, on I-4 is because we will not wrestle with God about the hard things. And so we wrestle with other people. Second, bless our students who have blazed the trail by engaging with their laments. Uh, Nicole will give you further instructions on that in a moment. But in that act, I hope you recognize the way you should bless your neighbors, coworkers and friends who need you to bless them in their laments. You have no idea how often you're, I'm doing great, discourages someone who is going through something. They don't wanna ruin your day. But when you say, 
You know, I'm, I'm sorry. Catch yourself. I catch myself all the time. Like, a cashier will say, how are you doing? And I say, oh, great. That's a lie, actually. I'm having a rough day, uh, but it'll be all right. And those real human interactions, uh, God blesses. Finally, fight the impulse to deny or numb what you should lament to God and your Christian brothers and sisters. Please remember, pretending <laughs> creates a new, different problem. It does not erase the problem that is still there. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, please bless us first with the hope that being honest with you will not lead to condemnation, but will lead to redemption. But then, Lord, please make good on that promise. Lord, the people who are struggling in this room with doubts and disappointments and sins, Lord, give them your grace. Lord, help all of us to be more honest with you and honest with each other. Make this church your church. Thank you so much for the students and their willingness to lament. Now, please help us to bless them. In Christ's name, amen.